Ben Bradshaw, welcome to Tell a Friend. Thank you very much. First of all, could you explain to me how you've been coping during this lockdown period? Well, uh, it's been different, uh, that's for sure. I mean, for me, and I think for most members of Parliament, it's been a very busy period because um, obviously we've had a lot of individuals, a lot of businesses that have been very uh, adversely affected uh, by the uh, COVID crisis and the uh, lockdown ensuing from it. Um, a lot of uh, constituents in Exeter, um, you know, in dire straits, either because they've lost their jobs or their businesses are under threat. So um, my office has been very, very busy. Uh, but um, we've all been working uh, pretty effectively flat out from home. Uh, I have a lot of friends in Italy, so I was watching very much the pro progression of, of the disease there, um, which was about three weeks ahead of us. So I knew what was coming to hit us. And I closed down my parliamentary office a couple of weeks before the lockdown and sent all my staff home and said, look, we're going to be working from home for the foreseeable future. So let's get set up now. And actually, you know, it's, it's been doable, what with uh, Zoom and um, virtual parliamentary sessions and even dragging Parliament into the 21st century with electronic voting, which has worked like a dream. Sadly, the government, uh, in its wisdom, is now scrapping that and we're all having to go back next week uh, in person to vote. Um, but overall, um, you know, we've coped reasonably well and I feel very lucky that I have a job and something useful to do. Uh, during this crisis. Now, obviously, the whole country has been affected by this pandemic, but how has the Exeter community risen to the challenge of adjusting to this new normal? Well, I think we've seen a wonderful coming together of the community in very many ways. We've seen, I think, during this crisis, both the best and the worst of British. I don't want to mention Dominic Cummings, but uh, uh, he, I would put in the category, is the worst. Whereas, you know, at community level, we've seen uh, volunteers from across the community doing what they can to uh, help lively, uh, lonely and isolated people. Uh, our local uh, city council transformed itself almost into a night into a, a COVID emergency uh, administration um, organisation uh, um, and have been doing, uh, giving great advice and help to local individuals and, and businesses. Um, even local private businesses are stepping up to the plate and uh, helping out with the production and supply of, of PPE. Uh, we had a sailing company near Exeter, which uh, helped ensure that the Royal Devon and Exeter Hospital uh, was not one of those hospitals that was ever affected by a serious shortage of gowns, for example. So uh, there's been a wonderful coming together and expression of the human spirit in Exeter in, in very difficult times. And as you say, we've been, um, thankfully, so far, one of the least affected uh, cities and regions with the lowest uh, infection rate and the lowest level of uh, mortality. Uh, but that does make us more vulnerable to a potential second wave. And although um, the disease itself has not hit uh, us as badly as, as other parts of the country, the economic impact in the southwest is expected to be uh, worse than in most parts of the country because of our heavy dependence on tourism. Not so much in Exeter itself, but in the surrounding um, countryside. Uh, and that is, a, 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 of course, a cause of, of great concern uh, going forward because uh, parts of our region are not rich uh, uh, in, in, in the best of times. And if we're going to uh, hit, be hit particularly badly by this, we need to make sure we do everything we can to make that impact as, as, as little as possible.
Now, you just mentioned Dominic Cummings, so I'm going to segue into talking about that. Clearly, he um, has caused a lot of outrage nationwide, and he had his press conference. Did you watch that conference? And if you did, what what did you take away from it? What was your reaction? Do you know, I couldn't bear to watch it, just as I couldn't bear to watch the Prime Minister uh, on the Sunday evening. I've got better things to do uh, with my time. Look, I have never had... Uh, the volume of emails and letters from constituents that I've had uh, over this uh, incident. Uh, people are absolutely incandescent uh, that they have been making untold sacrifices over two and a half months uh, now. They have not been uh, moving around. Uh, they have not been visiting dying relatives. Uh, they have not been uh, organising childcare, which involves driving half the way around the country. They have been doing what the government told them to do, which is stick to the rules and stay at home to protect the NHS and save uh, lives. Uh, I think Keir Starmer was absolutely right to say that if he was Prime Minister, he would have sacked Dominic Cummings. I think it's a disgrace that Boris Johnson hasn't. And I think it's a sign of his weakness that he hasn't. He's clearly completely dependent on this unelected uh, advisor. And it's damaging not only his credibility and that of Mr. Cummins, of course, but it's also damaging the public trust in the government and the public health message, which is absolutely essential in dealing with the pandemic and making sure that as we come out of lockdown, people know what the rules are, they stick to them, everybody sticks to them, uh, and that we can come out in a safe and managed way. And I think this is clearly an unprecedented situation we find ourselves in. And I think we can agree that any government would have been faced with a plethora of challenges in dealing with it. But what is your overall assessment of the government's handling of this pandemic? Well, you're right. I think this is something that would have posed enormous challenges to to any government. Uh, And I think, you know, we we will have to have uh, at some stage, and I, I hope it's sooner rather than later, a full public inquiry into this and the government's uh, handling on it. But I have two main concerns. The the first is that we weren't very well prepared. Uh, After 10 years of austerity, our NHS and social care system did not have any resilience left. If you look at the contrast in how we have managed this crisis compared with, say, Germany or Austria or many of the other continental European countries, that have had a far lower infection rate and far lower mortality rate than we have. Ours is now the worst in Europe, however you measure it, and possibly when it comes to excess deaths, even the worst in the world. So something clearly has gone wrong. And then all the way through this crisis, it seems to me that the government has been too slow. I think we were too slow to lock down, as we saw in the uh, very in-depth Uh, investigation by the the Sunday Times last weekend. Thousands and thousands of lives could have been saved in this country if we had locked down 10 days or two weeks earlier, as many people uh, were suggesting. We were slow to deliver PPE to our health and social care workers. We were slow to increase testing. In fact, we abandoned testing on March the 12th, and we're only just beginning to get back to a position where it's possible to reintroduce community testing, tracing and isolating, which is going to be essential if we're going to move out of of lockdown. And I just worry uh, that the government hasn't had a grip on this. Uh, The Prime Minister has been semi-absent, he's been almost 
invisible, when he has appeared, he hasn't seemed to have a grasp of the detail. And at a time like this, the public need to have a government that they think is handling the crisis competently so that they can have confidence in that government's public health message, which will keep us all safe. And I worry that that's going to be a real, really big problem going forward as a result of the government's mishandling of the crisis and because of the behaviour of Dominic Cummings. Now, I want to shift conversation to your life and career in politics. So let's start from right at the beginning. Could you take me back to a young Ben Bradshaw growing up and what was your upbringing like and who did you look for for inspiration? Well, um, I was brought up in rural Norfolk. My dad was a parish priest and my mum was a primary school teacher. Um, and I'm the youngest of five children. And um, I suppose my first interest in politics came around the family dining table where we'd all have, always had very lively discussions about current affairs and what was going on. Um, uh, my sort of formative years as a teenager and then as a, as a student were um, during the period when Labour were losing office in the 1970s and uh, we saw the Thatcher government coming in in 1979. And I think uh, those experiences were very formative uh, for my political awareness, as was uh, the fact that I'm gay. And, um, you know, at the time, uh, we still had a lot of um, uh, serious discriminatory laws against gay people. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I was looking for a political party that uh, supported equality and progress on those sorts of issues. So I think my natural political home was always going to be um, the Labour Party, but I never really uh, imagined or expected I would become a member of Parliament. I had a career in journalism uh, to start with um, in, uh, in the local uh, newspaper in Exeter and then BBC Radio Devon. And um, I, I had the great stroke of fortune to be sent by the BBC to Berlin um, at the beginning of 1989 on the strength of my German um, only for a few months later for the Berlin Wall to come down. So that was a really lucky career break for me. And after that, I worked very happily in journalism for the BBC uh, until um, Tony Blair became Labour Party leader. And I felt that the Labour Party had a chance once again, after 18 long, long years of Tory rule, to uh, uh, get into government. And then the opportunity arose for me to stand uh, for Parliament in Exeter. Um, uh, which is where I first joined the Labour Party and been fairly active in my 20s. Um, and I put my, put my name forward, never really expecting to be selected. And I was selected and then I was elected in 1997. And <laughs> I'm still there, rather to my own surprise, 23 or more years later. So that's the, that's the brief summary of, uh, of my political career. And in 97, when you had your election campaign, what was the moment that led you to believe this is the right time for me. And as we've mentioned, you being gay, did you ever worry about how your sexuality might hinder your political career? Um, well, I, it was a very different world back then. I mean, it's extraordinary to think, but my conservative opponent in 1997 ran a deeply homophobic cam campaign. Um, he, 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 just, he, said, he said about me that Ben, you know, Ben, homosexuality is, is a disease-ridden occupation, and Ben Bradshaw uh, is a homosexual 
speaks German, rides a bicycle, works for the BBC. He's everything about our country that is wrong. And even said that Exeter children would be in danger if I was elected. I mean, that's the kind of thing that, that we had to put up with back then. But I had much more confidence in the, in the common sense and decency of the British people and of the people of Exeter. And I kind of, I felt that the sort of days of, of prejudice were on the wane. And that's what gave me confidence to stand. Also the fact that I had a very supportive uh, family and uh, husband, then partner. Um, and uh, it, it actually made me more motivated to try to win a seat in Parliament because no, no one had ever been selected and won a parliamentary seat uh, being openly gay. And so I kind of, I, I guess in a way, it was a sort of, it was, it was attractive to try to try to make that historical first uh, step. Um, I mean, I, I think it was the combination of, of, of events, really. I, I, as I say, I think um, uh, Tony Blair, Blair's leadership of, of the Labour Party made me feel that, first of all, Labour had a chance of winning an election. And um, he represented a brand of progressive social democracy, um, democratic politics, which is which I've always shared and I've always found very attractive. Um, and uh, uh, um, it also coincided with the stage in my career where I thought, well, you know, if I don't at least have a go at doing this, I'll never know what it was like. Um, and, uh, you know, a, 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 an affinity with Exeter and the city and wanting to do my best for the city. Uh, I was doubtful that I would be selected because I thought there might be some people in the local Labour Party who might be a bit nervous about um, selecting an openly gay candidate. But I think it, I think it appealed in a way to their sense of radicalism um, and doing something first and, and new. And I also suspected that, that, that my Tory opponent's tactics would, would, hit, would uh, um, uh, dramatically backfire, as indeed they did. And... The campaign he ran was was I think um, very damaging to him, and I think that was you know that was illustrated in the fact that I got the biggest swing to Labour in the southwest of England. So um, yeah, no, I mean no regrets. I mean I was you know obviously concerned about the impact it would have on uh, my family and um, uh, my then partner, but um, he was up for it and they were all up for it, so um, we did it, and uh, yeah, it's been a fantastic, fantastic privilege and experience. And as you mentioned, you defied all odds and you got a majority of 11,705. And when you heard that result announced, what was going through your mind? Well, <laughs> uh, I mean, it just, I was absolutely elated. Um, I was really overjoyed. I mean, sadly, my, I lost my parents quite young, so um, they weren't around um, to see that moment. But my, um, uh, my elder sister, who uh, um, sadly... Uh, died last autumn was with me uh, for that election and every other subsequent election and obviously um, I felt I felt you know very um, humbled also very proud very um, uh, uh, overjoyed with the with the with the trust that the people of Exeter had, had put in me and and the and the and the and, and the and the historic moment uh, really um, I mean I often thought to myself when I covered the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, I was still in my late twenties, thinking, "Well, what am I? What, what am I going to do to beat that <laughs> for the rest of my life?" Um, uh, but actually, you know, that um, election in 1997 topped that for me personally, and um, I'll still remember it as the most amazing moment of my life. 
Now, during your tenure as MP, you've been in pretty much every department. I mean, you've been health minister, culture secretary, undersecretary for the foreign and commonwealth uh, affairs, and also deputy leader of the commons. And as we know, with great power comes great responsibility and also great criticism. What were some of the challenges you faced being in such senior positions in senior politics? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting to be asked to reflect back on that because um, uh, I, mean, I may be looking through rose-tinted spectacles now, but when you look back now at that Blair government of 97, well, really up until the global financial crash, they were golden years compared with what we've been going through since. We had a, um, we had a strongly growing economy. Uh, we had a government that was investing in public services in our schools and the NHS. Um, we had a government that was tackling inequality and reducing the gap between the rich and the poor. So uh, that was sweeping away all of those discriminatory laws I referred to early, earlier uh, on race, um, sexual orientation and everything else. So it was a good time to be in government and you felt you were doing a lot of positive things uh, most of the time. Of course, you know, one of the challenges in government is you can never do everything you want to do. And government you know, demands that you take tough choices about things sometimes, and they're not always easy. Uh, but I have to say, um, I think it was a relatively easy time uh, to be a minister. And um, I had, you know, I had, I took great satisfaction um, and pleasure from, you know, doing some of the things that we did in in every department I was in, it seemed to me as if we were making progress in the right direction. And when you're doing that, you know, it's you're having a ball, really. Um, uh, I mean, it's it's much better to be in government, however hard the times are, than in opposition. I can tell you. And uh, of course, you know, there are issues where you have um, strong disagreements on some uh, issues uh, internally. You flash those out internally if you can't. Um, stick with um, the the you know the collectively agreed line, then you have a choice to resign. But I was never in a position uh, where I, ha I faced that level of, of dilemma, um, and um, I, I was blessed really with having some of the best jobs in government and uh, um, ending up, you know, much to my own surprise, in the cabinet, which um, was something that you know I would never have imagined when I. When I stood for Parliament in 1997, let alone that I'd still be the MP in what was, you know, what was a Tory seat when I won it uh, back then. So, yeah, I absolutely no no complaints at all about my time in government. In fact, it was a, it was an incredible privilege, and I just hope that my Labour colleagues uh, of, the, of the next generation now um, are going to ha have that same experience sometime sometime in the future. And when we think about press scrutiny today and the criticism from members of the public. Would you say par Parliament and politics in general has become more toxic over the years? I think we've always had a very sort of rumbustious politics in this country. Um, and obviously social media has made things uh, different to a certain uh, degree. Uh, but I don't think there's any, there's been, ever been a time in, in, in our country where um, you know, the media has given politicians an easy time or an easy ride, particularly not Labour, not Labour politicians. Um, uh, so, you know, I don't make any complaints about that. I think politicians complaining about the media 
is like the captain of a ship complaining about the waves on the ocean. Um, I mean, if you're a, if you're a competent politician who can build a good team around you, uh, you can better weather those storms. Um, but uh, it's it's um, I, I think there's been a there's been a certain uh, coarsening of the of the of the political discourse uh, in the context of Brexit. I think some of the polarisation that we've seen as a result of the Brexit referendum. Uh, and the decision to leave the European Union um, have been damaging. Um, I certainly think uh, uh, the behaviour of the of the current current government and its disregard for um, uh, basic ten, tenets of, of decent behaviour uh, and um, political uh, convention um, are doing a lot of damage. But you know, this country has been through these kind of bad times before and I'm sure we'll come out of them again um, and you know we'll, we will restore a, a sense of decency and commitment and the hard work and public service to politics and public life but you have to fight for it you know these things don't just happen by themselves uh, you have to get involved you have to get stuck in it's no good just standing back and saying well I hope things get better it's up to us you know it's a bit like I'd love the world to be a better place after Covid uh, it might be, it might not. Uh, it's, that's up to us. It's up to each of us as an individual to do what we can to make sure that happens. Now, you speak fondly about your years under the Blair administration. But moving on to the more recent Corbyn years, you were critical of him in during the 2016 referendum. Now that he's moved on as leader of the Labour Party, what legacy do you think the Corbyn years had on the Labour Party and the British left in general? Oh, I think it's probably a bit too soon to make a definitive judgment on that. Um, but I think the early signs are that the legacy is actually not as much as a lot of people thought it would be. Um, if you look at the way uh, that Keir Starmer has very rapidly turned around the fortunes of the Labour Party, um, the incredible increase uh, in uh, his approval ratings, uh, not just compared with Jeremy's, but, but compared with Boris Johnson's, overtaking Boris Johnson's now by some measure in just a short matter of weeks. Um, I think the fact that you know he has um, uh, brought all of the wings of the party together um, in a very united way, that we have a, a, a very um, competent uh, front bench now of the best talent uh, really holding the government to account uh, effectively, and that he's just managed to secure um, his favourite candidate as the new general secretary. I think if you'd asked me to predict all of those things uh, three or four months ago, uh, I would have said, you must be crazy. Um, if you remember at the beginning of the Labour leadership campaign, um, Rebecca Long-Bailey was the favourite, because uh, everybody assumed uh, the Labour wrongly uh, uh, that the Labour membership, uh, you know, was all Corbynite and therefore would vote for the Corbyn continuity candidate. Actually, the Labour membership has never been that monolith. And um, one of the things that struck me as soon as I started working or volunteering on Keir's campaign uh, and making all those telephone calls was that Keir was getting a lot of support from all sorts of people in, across the party, including a lot of people who uh, who voted for, Je for Jeremy twice. Twice. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of that was was people's dismay at us having lost 
three elections in a row, and of course the 2019 election, worse than any election uh, for 100 years. So um, I, I, I think that, that Jeremy Corbyn's legacy, such as it is, um, will, 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 will not be huge. And I think there's already evidence for that. Um, but I think, as I say, it's, I think it's probably a little bit early to make a, a definitive judgment, or it's very difficult until you've had a bit of time to see how things settle down. Now, as someone who's lived in Exeter for three years, an issue that I notice is the homelessness issue. And a student journalist from Exeter University wrote an article on Exeter Prison Revolving Door. And in that report, she quoted the homelessness charity Julian House, who stated that between 2018 and 2019, a shocking 51.3% uh, of releases from the prison, from Exeter Prison, came out having unsettled accommodation, and a significant proportion of them had no housing option at all. And we hear issues about lack of funding, lack of mental health uh, attention being given to the prisoners once they leave. What action are you currently taking or are you going to take to make sure that this group of the Exeter population are not ignored anymore? Well, I wish I could do more. I wish I could if we had a Labour government. I mean, that's been part of the problem, hasn't it? Because uh, if you look at, what, look at what happened to homelessness and rough sleeping under that Labour government from 1997 to 2010, when we were elected in 97, we had a similarly appalling uh, homelessness and rough sleeping problem that we inherited. And within the space of 13 years of that Labour government, it was almost eradicated. And I'm afraid in the last 10 years, we've gone all the way back to now a situation which is even worse than the one we had before. But isn't it interesting that during the COVID crisis, the government has shown, actually, that we can house the homeless. The government has shown that it can take proper action to provide accommodation for homeless uh, people. And local authorities, particularly like Labour ones in Exeter, do what they can with hugely reduced uh, funds, a complete lack of alcohol and drug treatment programmes, with our supported housing programme, which used to help vulnerable people like people coming out of jail or from the armed forces or people with mental health or drug or alcohol issues help them live independently as a kind of stepping stone to living completely independently. All of those programmes were cut uh, by the Tory government uh, because of austerity in 2010. Uh, so it is a national scandal that we have allowed homelessness to become as serious again as we have. And I hope that one of the good things that might come out of uh, the COVID crisis is that we've shown it can be done where there's a political will and where there are the resources. And I'm sure you will find not only Julian House at local level, which does a fantastic job, our city council and everyone else, very, very willing and eager to work with a government that is committed to eradicating homelessness. But that's what we need. And we need the policies and we need the funding in place to allow that to happen. Now, you speak there about the government having brought in all of these, I guess you could say, socialist measures to make sure that people are looked after during this crisis. And we've seen the government spending en masse during this time. Do you think after we return to something that resembles normal, the government will be able to take all of that back? Uh, well, I think, it, I think it, it's possible. They might try. Uh, I think it would be politically very difficult for them to do so, though, because... 
Um, I think one of the things that we haven't yet quite faced up to uh, when we're in the middle of the uh, pandemic itself is the short, medium and long term economic impacts of all of this. I mean, even in somewhere like Exeter, which, relatively speaking, is predicted to be less badly hit economically by COVID because we have a fairly resilient and diverse economy and because we have a strong uh, and good university. Uh, the projections are we could lose 18,000 jobs. And of course, at the moment, that's not really happening because of the furloughing scheme and so forth. But once that support is withdrawn over the weeks and months uh, to come, as the pandemic, as we hope it will, uh, is, is declined, then we're going to have to make some really difficult economic choices around taxation and spending. And it'll be interesting to see what the government decides to do. I mean, obviously, Labour and I will be uh, pushing on the government to make sure that we support the economy, that we support people in work, that we support jobs, that we invest. Uh, and, but I don't think that's a given. You know, uh, we don't have a majority. The government does have a majority, a very big one, uh, because of our failure to win the election in December. And as this government has shown with its behaviour in other areas, if it wants to do something, it can. It can do almost exactly what it likes. So uh, we have to make sure that we're a strong and competent and forceful opposition, um, that um, you know, we scrutinise the government and we speak out for our communities and for our society. But I think, as I said earlier, I don't think there's any given that the world that emerges from COVID will be the better one that I think a lot of us hope it will be, uh, more equal with um, care workers and other essential workers who are some of the low, lowest paid people in our country, properly valued and properly rewarded for, the, for what they do. Uh, the lessons learned from our underinvestment in the health service and care services. Uh, so I hope those lessons are learned, but that will depend on not just the politicians, but on every one of us. And what we do, what we collectively do to get involved, get active, get active in a political party, uh, and not just sit back and hope for the best, because that's not how you achieve change in a, in a democracy. In April, there was a leaked Labour report that exposed racism within Labour ranks. And we saw MPs such as Diane Abbott, Dawn Butler and Clive Lewis particularly targeted by this racism. What can Keir Starmer and the new Shadow Cabinet do to combat this racism and make Labour a more welcoming and inclusive environment? Well, it's absolutely tragic that um, over the last two or three years that the party I joined because of its historic commitment to um, anti-racism and equality uh, has been mired in this controversy of, of, uh, of anti-Jewish racism in particular. Uh, any racism uh, is, of course, completely unacceptable, particularly in the Labour Party, which has been committed throughout its whole history to fighting injustice and, and inequality. I'm really pleased uh, by what Keir has said about this since becoming leader, the fact that he is engaged with the Jewish community, uh, that he has set up this uh, in, independent investigation a, a, into uh, the report that was leaked um, uh, by some people uh, in the party uh, a couple of months ago. I'm happy to let that investigation take its course, and I await the outcome of the um, uh, Human Rights and Equalities Commission uh, investigation into the Labour Party in due course. And I'm absolutely confident that when that report comes out, uh, that Keir will act on its recommendations, 
uh, including taking action uh, against people uh, if that is deemed to be necessary. Um, I have no doubt in his commitment to uh, uh, tackling this scourge in our party. And uh, if we don't do so, um, I'm afraid that will damage our chances of winning the next election. Because there's no doubt in my mind, having talked talk to, knocked on 20, 30,000 doors during the election campaign running up to December, um, that um, our failure to tackle anti-Semitism was, was a significant concern for a a, a number of uh, voters and across the country and damaged our reputation. And if you weren't already in the Labour Party and you were looking from the outside in with the anti-Semitism uh, scandals they've had, with the racism scandals they've had, with the leadership quarrels, is the Labour Party a party you would join today? Definitely. I mean, I have always uh, said, even in our darkest moments in the last two or three years, that people should join the Labour Party because we live in a parliamentary democracy. Uh, our system is built on political parties and you don't change anything except by working with that system. If you want to change the Labour Party for the better, you join it. And one of the things I was really delighted about over recent months is by the huge number of people who have either joined or rejoined the party to do exactly that, to help rebuild our party into a a proper, competent, professional political party again that could win elections and govern, govern on behalf of uh, the people of this country and put our values into practice. There's no point being involved in a political party uh, unless you're in, in a position to put your values into practice. So um, definitely, and I think that the, argument, the arguments now for joining the Labour Party have never been stronger. We have a fantastic, attractive new leader who... I think the public are beginning to see would make a very good prime minister. We have a real chance of winning uh, the next election. Uh, we have an absolutely abysmal government that has not just managed the COVID crisis appallingly, but has shown through its behaviour that it's not fit uh, to be in office. So if you want to help and get involved and make your country a better place, uh, that you do that by joining and getting involved in, in the Labour Party in, what, in whatever way uh, you, you think you can, and it's a wonderful institution, whatever whatever its um, uh, faults and, and weaknesses, uh, and certainly I have absolutely no regrets that I've stuck with it throughout the last few decades, uh, and through all those ups and downs, and um, I hope very much that, you know, this is an exciting time to get involved, and that hopefully the, the, the next generation of, of Labour members, activists, and others who are involved now will, will see some of those great uh, experiences that I did in the late 90s uh, with those landslide Labour victories and fantastic Labour governments. Now, I wanted to conclude with a quick fire round and I ask you to fill the sentence. The greatest misconception about me is... <sighs> um, the assumption... The assumption... Uh, uh, the greatest misconception about me is the assumption of what my politics are. I fear most. Uh, um, I fear most. Currently, what I fear most is us crashing out of the European Union at the end of this year without a deal. My biggest regret is... 
This might sound corny, but I, I feel as if I've kind of had a very fortunate and lucky life. I don't really have any, any regrets. Um, uh, yeah, I feel as if I've been completely blessed, really. Um, and it's almost embarrassing to say that, but that's the truth. I am most proud of. Uh, I think. You know, apart from all the stuff that we did in government and what we did in Exeter when we had Labour government and all the new schools which have transformed the quality of education in Exeter, I think in terms of the the own my own party locally is is um, you know building such a strong local uh, Labour tradition in Exeter in what was what used to be a Tory city and the role I played in that because that's a legacy which I hope will will survive long after I've retired. Ben Bradshaw, thank you for joining me on Tell a Friend. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure.